Welcome to The Profitable Python with your host, Ben McNeil. On this episode, you will meet Dr. Charles Severance. Dr. Chuck is a clinical professor at the University of Michigan School of Information. He is a thought leader in open source educational technology and open educational resources. Dr. Chuck is also the creator of a disruptive open source learning technology named Sugi, as well as a course creator for Python for Everyone, Django for Everyone, and Web for Everyone. As, as well as edX and Coursera courses. Dr. Chuck, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to it. I'm we're going to have some fun. Yes, yes, indeed. So just for the icebreaker piece, I'd love to jump into this. What is the main niche that you solve problems in? So I would say that, I would say that the main niche that I solve problems in, the, the, I'd call it my lane, right? What's my lane? The, the, the unique lane that I'm in is I'm a highly educated and accomplished computer professional. And all I think about is people who know nothing about computing and then generally hate computing hmm. and how I can reach those people, right? So I think far too many computer scientists would rather just look at a thousand people and pick the five smartest ones and then work with those and say, you know, whatever, you guys do something else, be a bread truck driver or a, or a maid or whatever. And I, I want to find that bread truck driver and that maid, and I want to turn them into technologists, right? And so that, that probably is the lane that it's rare for me to meet anyone who, whose goal it is is to teach the people who perhaps are the least naturally talented in programming. Yeah, I love it. It's, it's truly like a disruptive uh, mission that you're on, and I, I love that. We're going to dig into that more. Yeah, I mean, for the, for the rest of my life, everything that I'm going to do is going to kind of end in for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. All those websites that I had trouble rattling off at the end, for everybody. And we're going to make sure they have links to those as well. Great. So, so how would you explain the difference of informatics and computer science approach to learning programming? Uh, how would you explain that to my 95-year-old grandmother? Well, hopefully a 95-year-old grandmother has a, at least an iPhone or something. So if, <laughs> if you imagine your 95-year-old grandmother having an iPhone, you got you to gotta imagine what the goal of a computer science program versus a goal of a school of information like I come from. The goal of a computer science program is to be able to build the complex innards from the central processing unit to the antenna tuning devices to all these things that, that make it possible to even have a phone, right? The, the hardware and the low-level software. And that takes a certain amount of depth and dedication. I mean, it's just like designing an automobile or, you know, you, someone sits there with this engine, they try it over and over and over again and try all these things. And then finally they fit, find the one that can go 100,000 miles. And so a computer scientist really is like a more of an electrical engineer computer, and a, or, 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 or an engineer who's just trying to engineer a solution to a tiny little really difficult problem. And then if you have enough of those tiny little difficult problems and you add them all together, whether it's the touch screen or the CPU or the memory or the heat or the battery, you just need engineers to attack all those little problems. And so there's computer science to me is the training of those people, right? That, you know, this is a job that's very professional, but the, the problem is, is that in all the computer science I really taught, nobody really cared so much what this thing would be used for. We just built the thing and you'd be like, it's 20% faster than last year's thing. And it's got more pixels than last year's thing. And it's like, and we all think about, and that's not saying that's a bad thing. It's just computer science in many ways thinks their job is done. 
when the thing starts up and, and, and they run their little test thing that says, you know, how many times did I add numbers? It's faster than last year's adding of numbers loop. And then a school of information or informatics or other things say, great, I don't know who it was that made this thing and it's pretty cool, it's got a camera. Well, what could we do with a camera, right? And then after that, you go like, well, I did a thing with a camera and I showed it to your 95 year old grandmother and she hit all the wrong buttons. Like, how could I have got the buttons so wrong in this little application, use the camera, what's, what's wrong? You know, and, and instead of just saying, well, let's, let's retrain your grandma because she clearly doesn't understand my brilliant software, we instead say, well, let's change the software so that your grandma can use it. Mm-hmm. And so for me, a school of information informatics is really more interested in the application and the use of computers, including building software and understanding that software for end users and how, why do we have them? What are we going to use them for? Are there good things about them? Are there bad things about them? You know, what does it take for them to be successful? And so while I come from a school of information and um, most of the people that I, that I teach, I would say are kind of liberal arts majors with technology skills, um, which gives them a lot of critical thinking ability, the kind of things that you want when you're trying to wonder about what we should, what we should do both from an ethics and technical perspective. But computer science is completely, um, completely complementary to that. And if, if, if we talk about the kind of things I've taught, I've mostly been teaching up to, to now the, the way for sort of a UI designer or someone to find their way into the field with a little bit of technical skills so that they can actually have good conversations with computer scientists and say, you know, this is your multi-touch thing. That's the greatest patent in the world. But, you know, people just want to do this rather than that. Or they want to have two fingers rather than one finger. You didn't think about that. Um, and so, And so at the same time, I, I'm, 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 I'm teaching this 95% of the population that are not computer scientists, but I still am a computer scientist. And the next series of courses that I want to teach will actually draw people into thinking more about computers and what they are and how they work and how you might change them and how you might engineer them um, with a series of for everybody courses that I dream of making that even talk about hardware for everybody, you know, and, and how to do systems programming for everybody. And, calculus for everybody. And, 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 and I take the whole for everybody thing into more, not to, not to become computer science, but to say, you know what, I will expose you to a course on hardware and you might decide to change your career forever and go work in hardware and take a whole bunch of other classes. But I, I think if I have contributed one thing, it's convincing people that they are smart enough to learn more. Yeah. I I love that so much. This is, going a little bit off the plan here, but something that's become brutally apparent to me with working with people in my audience is that there's, there's so much fear that's holding them back that if, if they could just break through that fear, like for example, hardware could be extremely fearful, like, oh, you have to be an electrical engineer to do that. But if you got exposed to this, it could change the trajectory of your, of your life. And yeah. so that's, that's what I think is so amazing about what you're doing because there's so much, there's so much fear out there. And if there was just a I, I wish there was some sort of pill or something people could take and then just go beyond their fears. How amazing, you know, would this world become? And I think that's kind of what you're working on. Right. That's exactly what I'm working on. And, and those people who are walking around in fear of thinking that they're not smart enough for technical, technical uh, career, it turns out they're exactly the people we need, right? That we, have, we have selected a certain kind of mental mindset as the only people who are able to do advanced technical, technical work. Mm-hmm. And, there's just a lack of diversity 
I mean, you might even have gender diversity the right way and race diversity the right way, but there's also a lack of diversity of thinking that I think is the most important problem. Because when we're trying to get diversity in teams, we really are, our goal is not just like take a picture of the, of the team and say, wow, it's diverse. I can just count people in that picture and it's diverse. Mm-hmm. But frankly, if they all think the same and they, all, they, they can't bring new ideas to, to our problems, uh, that's, that's not really giving us the benefit of diversity. Diversity is like someone says, hey, I don't get it like in big, right? I don't get it. And so if you watch the movie big, uh, the point was, is not that he looked or was different than everyone else. He took a a kid's perspective, right? And so diversity is to bring more perspectives in. And so I would like to do exactly what you said of break down people's fears and lead them into the point where they're in the room and they go, I don't get it. Right. And then Mm -hmm. when they say, I don't get it, they turn and they go like, what? And they're like, you know, why did you put that button right in the middle? That's really not the useful button at all. Have you ever used one of these pieces of software before? You know, and, and so critical thinking and um, accepting multiple sort of perspectives. In, mm-hmm. in many ways, we kind of got hardware figured out, you know, and we got to figure out software and ethics and, and other kinds of things. And the farther afield we get from just pure hardware, the more we need uh, so many different voices um, that are a better reflection of the actual population that's using uh, using all this technology. Mm, yeah, I love it. So what is the world going to look like after barriers to entry and programming are removed due to projects like Python? So I, I think a lot about that, right? So I, I have this goal that seems like an inf- impossible, insurmountable goal of every human on the planet having some programming skill and some awareness of technology. And and I have dedicated my life and will continue to do that. But I often sort of, in the quiet moments, I'm like, what if you're successful, right? What if somehow you achieved your goals? And it is difficult for me to think about a world where everybody knew Python and everybody knew H- and literally, I mean, every single person walking down the street, every one of them knows Python. And I'm like, what would happen to our economy? It would yeah. fail. Like, what would we do? And, and so I don't think about that, right? And, and so the good news is, is I don't think I'm going to succeed in getting everybody to know technology. I don't think I'm going to make it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just means that um, the small fraction of my close friends are going to do better, right? And so, so it's, it's, I, I just accept the fact that it's, when I say for everybody, it just means everybody who knows me, you know, and everyone who hangs out with me and everyone who takes my classes and then everyone who goes on to do really cool stuff after they take my classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the short term, that's everybody. I, I do think that if we got to the point where, um, and I, you know, we don't need everybody to truly program. There are so many really good jobs out there in the world, like building houses and plumbing and heating and air conditioning. I mean, I don't know if you've ever worked on your own furnace, but you want someone to work on that too, you know? And so it's not like programming is the only thing, but I think for a lot of people, programming would be a good thing for them to do. I mean, they might not like heating and air conditioning and they might not pl- like plumbing or construction or car repairs, but, but, and those people who for their, their, their best use would have been programming. Those are the people that I kind of want to reach. And so I, I think ultimately we, we could find that um, software would get better and better. Um, I think we as society would begin to take more control of our destiny rather than delegating our data, our ethical choices to a few billionaire owned companies on the coasts. And instead we could do something like a, you know, use an open source operating system, have an uh, audio assistant in your home where you actually, somebody 
outside of a shareholder value-driven company actually knows the source code. I mean, these things exist, but they're not as sustainable as just a billion-dollar company stealing all your, all your sound in your house for the next 20 years and making money off the sound in your house. And so maybe if we had enough talented people and then we could actually have really good pieces of technology that we as society completely and totally control, right? Just imagine that the amount of money that's going into Apple and Microsoft would go into Linux and Raspberry Pi and those kinds of things. And we would build beautiful software that was open source. And if someone sneaked a thing in to upload the, the audio recordings from the home assistant to some central location, like someone could see it and then blow the whistle. And so, right. I mean, I, I'm starting to sound like Richard Stallman at this point, <laughs> and I don't always agree with his methodology, right? I'm not as, I'm not as radical as Richard Stallman. Um, I would rather get to sort of this, this utopian open world without sort of destroying, you know, just, just come up with something that just kind of replaces in a better way rather than like just fight, fight, fight all the time. And because ultimately, I mean, if you look at the laptop I'm using, it comes from a proprietary company. You look at this phone I've got sitting in front of me, it comes from a proprietary company because I want a camera that works and I want a phone that works. And so I'm not, I'm not going to burn the buildings down. But I do think if we could get to the point where the average person could help in things like open source, um, we would have much better control of our own destiny. And, I, and, I, and, and in everything that I do in open source, I find ultimately it is all about choice and control. Um, open source is not necessarily easier. Uh, and we are always low on resources. We could always use more help. Um, and yet we are sitting here protecting society's vulnerabilities against large corporations and governments um, because now you have a piece of software that you could completely control and own that you don't have to give your data away to somebody else, but we're under-resourced and you know, no one cares. So maybe if we would just have enough people and that actually is a sort of a, that's sort of a secret hidden agenda that I have ultimately is um, <laughs> to prepare, to teach people the kinds of technologies that would lead to a richer open source ecosystem, not necessarily just my projects, but any and all projects. And if I can get people who learned from free and open materials, got jobs with free and open source software, and then maybe they had some spare time or spare resources, they can contribute to those kinds of things. That would, that would be a dream of mine ultimately. And, and, and again, even though I'm, I'm not Richard Stallman, I'm not taking the same approach as Richard Stallman, I think my goal is kind of similar in a way that we would understand our technology. And like example, let's just say I was successful, right? And like I was successful 20 years ago and every single human being understood the network, understood Python, understand programming, understand hardware. And every single person in the U S Congress right now knew Python and all those right. things. And then we have a thing like net neutrality would come up. You wouldn't have to bribe people to get them to do the right thing. Right. Hmm. They would just know what the right thing is. And so, you know, even if we think of our government, they're, they're a surprisingly uneducated bunch of people. Mm. The administrations of universities are a surprisingly technically incompetent group of people. Mm. And if we could get everybody to understand technology, those people who ended up in these positions would know technology before they got in these positions, and then they could make better informed choices. Because I think there's lots of places that just make horribly uninformed choices for their organizations because the data that they have or the kind of analysis that they can do is just completely uninformed because they are not smart enough 
to do the analysis of what the real risks are of choices that they're making. Hmm. Yeah, the implication just sound it just sounds huge. If if people if we could just get everybody or or a, a larger sample of the population involved with it. Yeah, I mean educational technology, which is you know my first love. I mean we've already had our Cambridge Analytica moment. People just don't talk about it. I mean in the past we've yeah. had things that are as bad as Cambridge Analytica and Facebook happen, but. <laughs> Don't rock the boat. Don't yeah. tell anybody. Yeah, I, I guess the Chuck's good, just a crazy guy out there talking about privacy of student data. It's too much money to be made. Yeah, that that's actually something I want to get around to. Maybe now's a good time to ask you: Do you think students are profit centers? I think students are assets. Okay. I think I think student data is an asset. Um, I think that uh, universities are subsidizing their costs by selling student, by handing student data to third parties. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. There's an increasing number of companies. Their value is somewhere between 50% and hundred percent higher than their revenue would indicate. And it only has to do with the amount of data they simply possess. So I'm going to buy your company. Your company's worth $50 million, but it has a bunch of data. So I'll pay you hundred million dollars for a $50 million company. Wow. And so what happens is the ownership of this student data sort of, you think you've sold it to some ethical, nice people and you know, they, they seem nice enough. They're not going to do anything bad with the data. And then the company gets, goes public and then the company gets sold to a private equity and then that private equity, and you're losing the, the original people who are ethical that started the company in the first place. They, they're gone. They took their money. They're all driving Tesla's. And then what happens is, is the ownership then evolves from public to private equity to who knows what, to who knows what, to who knows what. And then someone gets this offer they can't refuse financially. And then all of a sudden the data is gone. We saw this thing happen, for example, with um, hmm. the patents on the Unix operating system. I don't exactly remember. All I know is a few people were making a big, big fuss when some company, it was like Novell or something was like, they were parting out, you know, it was like, it was like the last fire sale of the last fire sale of the last fire sale. And they had no assets. They hadn't had a product for 15, 20 years. It was a complete, just, you know, here's a couple of office desks and some 20 year old routers and a couple of giant desktop PCs. Oh, and wait a second, there's a bunch of patents, right? And these are patents for Unix that had been sort of Somebody got them and they gave them to somebody else, sold them to somebody else. And all these companies along the way were what you'd think of as people or companies that would, would own those patents and do the right thing for the world. And then they were about to be sold at a fire sale to some slimy scumbags. Hmm. And so I, I don't remember all the details. I just remember hearing from people. It's like, we got to scrape up some money and buy these patents or these patents are going to go off into a place where someone is going to do nothing but maximize it. And that's a way for user data and intellectual property to kind of just like you give it to someone who you think is going to hold on to it and love it the way we might love it. Hmm. I, I can't imagine AT&T doing something bad with a Unix patent. They might, but some little slimy private equity company that you never know of that does parting that just parts out companies. They don't give a crap about a Unix patent. If someone will pay them money for it, they don't care who that is. If the check clears are going to sell it. So I think we, we have this danger of intellectual property patents and student data that, 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 the longer we get away from the time we gave away the data, the less we have any understanding about the life cycle of that data. So mm -hmm. folks, folks I know that are smart say, you know, everything will ultimately be public, right? And it's not because we want it to be public. It's just 
we're going to just not care. We're going to hand it off and we're going to think that's a, care, a place that's going to care. And then they're going to transfer it to others and others and others. And then eventually it'll just become public. And so it would be nice if people making those kind of decisions today, just like the Cambridge Analytica, everyone, you know, whatever, years and years later is like, oh, I'm shocked. I couldn't be more shocked. And why didn't Mark Zuckerberg know in advance that this was what was going to happen years later? And the answer is, don't let go of the data in the first place, right? You know, right. that you can't know. I mean, that's the thing about Zuckerberg, the Cambridge Analytica. I mean, Farmville has that data too. They just happened to decide, didn't decide, Farmville didn't decide to use it for political purposes. I mean, Facebook released that data to thousands of companies, including Farmville. Hmm. And everyone just made farms and we don't care. It was fine. And so, but they just didn't turn it to political gain or financial gain by manipulating politics, which is what Cambridge Analytica did. And so we get, you know, the decision to give the data to Cambridge Analytica or the data to Farmville, which, which of those two decisions was the bad one? And the answer is in the moment, they didn't seem all that different. Now right. we're years later, we're like, I knew that Farmville wasn't going to be bad, but Cambridge Analytica was going to be bad. No, you didn't. No, you right. didn't know. And so we're, we're giving away our data, our intellectual property and our, our seed corn as it were. Hmm. I'm a little grumpy. Sorry. <laughs> Well, let me, let me ask you this. Do you think that uh, blockchain can help with the custody of that data or is, th is that not appropriate, you think? Uh, I don't think blockchain solves any problem at all, okay. except if your startup has, has run out of phase one money okay. and you need to get phase two money. Throw that buzzword in there. And you say, we're pivoting to blockchain. <laughs> so if I had a startup I would, and I ran out of money, I would pivot to blockchain. And I would pivot to natural language processing. And then I would okay. pivot to artificial intelligence. And then right before I went out of business, I would sell your personal data to the Chinese government for a billion dollars. And then I'd be fine because now I got my Tesla, right? That's crazy. Yeah. Sorry, I'm a little cynical, right? No, that's, that's fair enough. I, 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 love, I, I love you sharing this with me and with the audience. Um, I don't think people talk about this stuff. No, no. I'm not in those circles. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, th this is fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so, okay, let's see here. The next question that I had was, uh, let's see here. What, ex <laughs> since we were just talking about AI in such a great light, what excites you about the future of AI analytics and data science? That in 10 years, people will stop talking about AI analytics and data science and call it statistics, which is what it is. Right. So, yeah, so apparently statistics does not excite venture capitalists, but okay. analytics and AI do. Um, let's dig in a little bit. So there are some things, there are some statistics that are pretty cool, super cool, like natural language processing and model building. As long as you understand what the question is, right? You can build a model to answer any question. You simply have to have a, a set of input data, a set of answers, what you want from that input data. And then you take, you know, new stuff and the notion of models and the motion of notion of training models that has become so amazing. And so, you know, if, if, if you want to go build a model for uh, when people are happy or sad on Twitter and you go take a bunch of tweets and you do it, it, that technology is amazing, but there's one flaw in it. And that is you got to decide what actual happiness and sadness is. Mm. You might've actually, you might be like completely as a, you know, might have no empathy whatsoever. And you might decide that people who are happy are the ones that agree with you. And the people that are unhappy, disagree with you right and so now you've, you know you know you've taken this this is the happy group this is the unhappy group and you trained your thing and you think you trained it for happiness but you really trained it for the people that agree with you the actual training in the model that's fine 
right? That's just like addition at this point. That's pretty impressive that they've got it to the point where they can do it. But the problem is, is who defines what the right answer is? Who defines the answer key? And you can label the answer key as happiness or sadness or a tendency for violence or tendency for not violence, but it could just be people I like and people I don't like. And now it's really good at predicting who you're going to like in the future. Hmm. And so that's the danger of all this stuff, right? And the, the, in, in particular, in educational technology, analytics is like a big, big deal. And it just grinds my gears. And the problem is that there is so little in teaching and learning analytics that, that anyone really wants to help teachers. The, what they really want to do is um, destroy teachers. They, wanna, they want to basically say, look, we've run this data on your class and uh, these five kids are so crappy, you ought to kick them out of class and here's your superstars. I'm going to do this for you. And you know what? I'm a teacher. And if I got 30 kids in my class, I really don't want to know what the, who the losers are, right? I'd like to make, let them, you know, not be labeled immediately that said, you know what? It's, it's the third week of class and there's three kids sitting out my office, outside my office for office hours. And they come in and I put my camera, I point them at you. So I'm pointing them at, and it says, Oh, he not going to make it, not going to make it. Okay. So I don't have time for you. Sorry. I pointed another kid. Ooh, this is a superstar. Hang on. Let me look at third person. Not good. Okay. Um, I have time to talk to you, but neither you two, cause you're wasting my time. Cause the little artificial intelligence gadget told me that you were wasted. These other two people are a waste of time. Mm. I don't think that's fair. I don't think oh. that that teachers should be given those kinds of tools. And so the problem is, is the people who pay for artificial intelligence or learning analytics, they are telling administrators who have no effing clue what they're doing because they didn't take my Python class 20 years ago. They're like, really? There's a thing where you can point it at every student in the thing and know which one's going to fail or succeed. I, I'll pay $100,000 for that for a year. Oh, and I'll give you all my data too. You seem like nice people, right? And so then you're like, I could have spent that $100,000 on some pencils, you know, mm -hmm. or maybe some notebooks or, or construction paper or Elmer's glue. They're like, oh no, it's so good to be able to like scan your class and have like a thumbs up, thumbs down on every kid face as you're scanning your class and I pay all this money. And so that's, that's the problem is the, the market is aimed at the stupid people with a lot of money. And so they produce products that appeal to stupid people with a lot of money. And it just turns out that it's pretty sexy to kick teachers, right? It's really a good business model to, to walk up to an administrator and say, your teachers are all crap but they'll be less crappy if I give you this little gadget that, that puts green and yellow arrows over each of the kids' faces in class while you're giving a lecture, right? Wow. So I'm, I'm cynical about that too, right? I, I, you know, I, too much educational technology software is unmodifiable by anybody in actual education. It's modifiable by people that work for boards of directors that are there to maximize shareholder value. And mm. if a teacher says, hey, what about us? They're like, hmm is there anything in this conversation that's going to maximize shareholder value? And the answer is, well, if you actually listen to somebody, then maybe you'll actually have to do some work and actually fix your product and not be so evil, but that's going to cost me money. Mm -hmm. right? So no conversation with a teacher for an educational technology company, that is not a way to maximize shareholder value. You want to spend all your time talking to the administrators who actually don't teach. and don't understand anything about technology. They just have budgets. Yeah, that's wild. How do we fix the incentives? Um, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I, I, I know a lot of teachers and I know a lot of teachers that just, just do the right thing. 
mm-hmm. and they accept that incompetent leadership and education is going to waste their money. And so they just take money out of their own pockets to go to office max and buy some pencils for their kids. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and thank heaven for human beings that sort of just say, you know what, I can't fix this. I can't go up against my boss and call my boss an idiot. Um, I'm just going to do the best I can in the situation that I'm in. And uh, these kids are worth it. These kids are worth, you know, telling my boss what my boss wants to hear. And then you get going into a classroom and teaching what the kids need. Right. I mean, it's kind of like the Hippocratic oath of teachers that, you know, yep. The administrators are there and the publishers are there and all the people are there to take away from education. Cause to me, education is a sacred thing. Right. And we must fund it. Right. And so that means if you're a company that can steal some of that money, it's a good place to steal money because we're sweet or kind. We're, we're like, Oh, really? You know, and then they take your money. So it's, it's, it's frustrating. It's frustrating. I mean, that's, that's why I'm in open source, right? I mean, I'm a teacher first and a programmer second and the leader of open source communities third. And, you know, in these open source communities, we listen to teachers and it doesn't always maximize shareholder value. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I guess you just have to go with the, those who are willing, right? The, those who are willing to be courageous and, and try to do things that the teachers actually want and, uh, and, and take the risk of the, of the consequences of shareholder value because I think it's, it's more important to do the right thing and do the honorable thing and do the honest thing than it is to make a ton of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing that really kind of excited me about uh, what your vision is for the future is the learning tool app store that contains hundreds and of thousands of learning applications and then and coming up with integration standards. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because that's a, I mean, that's like some world domination stuff, but in like the not like funneling money all the way into your bank account type thing. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I can talk about that a lot. <laughs> um, and so... If you go back to 2004 and before, every learning system was like a stovepipe, a little island all by itself. Okay. Um, and there's reasons that it had to sort of be isolated. But um, in 2004, we started the Sakai project. And I thought when it started that our goal was to be so much better than our open source product would be so much better than all the other products that people would bow before us and eliminate those products from the marketplace. And we would have 100% market share. Mm-hmm. And we had a, a few courageous schools that that got it for the first couple of years, and we still have those schools. But um, but people don't want to be courageous on average. I mean, they just don't want to be courageous. And so I figured out after two years, we had meteoric growth up to five percent market share. But then we had no growth after five percent market share, and literally it's been twelve more years, and we've had really no growth above five percent market share. But literally within the first year and a half, I'm like, Oh boy, it was not an infinite curve. It was an S curve that flattened out very quickly. It was fun when the S curve was going up, but it, but it got flat really fast. Okay. And so at that point in time, I thought to myself, if I want to change teaching and learning, I better change it through those other vendors, right? Not by eliminating those other vendors. Cause I was never going to be able to do that regardless of my product. Our, our open source product is roughly equivalent. It's not like a thousand times better even though if I had salespeople, I could tell them it's a thousand times better. And then they would say it's a thousand times better. But truthfully, the commercial products, the open source products are roughly equivalent and it's just a matter of taste and, um, and flavoring at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so I started working on this thing that would be a way to plug tools into every learning management system called IMS Learning Tools Interoperability. And uh, back in the day, there wasn't a lot of belief in it. That'd be 2006, 2007, 2008. And, um, and I, we had a couple of versions of the specification that sort of like failed to launch, and then we'd build another version of it. And finally, by 2009, 2010, we had something that people were like at least moderately interested in. And so I knew that the moment we could convince the entire marketplace to have a plug-in model, in addition to their proprietary model, that things would change for the better and things that teachers wanted could be built outside the learning management system. So you didn't have to convince a big company that doesn't want to do anything other than what they're doing currently. You would just have a little tiny company that would build something and plug that in. Mm -hmm. And so we started building learning tools interoperability. And at the beginning, there was not all that much interest in it because the, the vendors in learning management's marketplace, they were, they were afraid that their world would come crashing down if their customers could plug the same tool into them and into their competitors' products. So it mm. took a little coaxing, and that's why I put this tattoo on. <laughs> so I don't know if you can see this tattoo. Sakai. Sakai, IMS, Blackboard, um, Angel, Coursera, Moodle. So what I did with this tattoo is I put Sakai on there and I said that I would put any vendor who implemented learning tools interoperability's logo on my shoulder if they would do it. And this yes. was and I, at this point in time, because I was kind of the CEO of Sakai, I knew all the CEOs of all these companies and I would, you know, run into them at a cocktail party and I'm like, you do learning tools interoperability. Look, Desire to Learn's got their tattoo <laughs> on my shoulder and you don't. <laughs> And it, 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 I'm not sure if that was important or not, but it allowed me to have a conversation with CEOs over a couple year period. And, um, and you know, after a while they would say, you know, we just put that in angel when you're going to get the tattoo. And I'm like, I kind of winning now, right? If they're, if they think that the tattoo is an important part of stuff, because I would know the product managers and I would know the engineers and I would know all these folks in the, all these companies and they would, mm -hmm. and they would uh, ask me about the tattoo. And so learning tools interoperability became pretty universal. The learning management system Canvas, which was created in 2008, came out after learning tools interoperability. And Canvas made it uh, really a core part of their whole product to be learning tools interoperability. And since then, they have been the fact that you can plug into Canvas, they have a kind of a plug-in, almost a plug-in first architecture. Um, they, the, the market, and it, it, was, it was successful before Canvas, but Canvas got a lot more mileage out of it than everybody else did. But what happened was is that these vendors found that um, once they put this in, instead of it leading to the customers running for the exits for their product, they, the customers started to love them more and more and more because the customers stopped whining to their vendor because they could get a different little tiny vendor to build them something and they would plug it into Blackboard or Canvas or Desire to Learn or whatever. So this ecosystem of uh, 10 to 20 person startup companies from 2010 till present um, started popping up. And I was their mentor and I'd help them. I'd show them all this. I'd show them the ropes. And, uh, and if you count kind of like the ascendancy of canvas in the market and the ascendancy of these tools, it's probably this tattoo, I think would represent about $2 million of market market shift in ed tech, just hmm. a thing that me and two other people cared about in 2007. So I, I, I think we changed everything now. Um, and, and, to, and so far, it hasn't really hurt the LMS vendors. The thing that's hurt the LMS vendors is one comes out that does it better than the others, and then everyone kind of flocks to, flocks to that new, the new one. But it's not that 
It's not that one, the, the learning tools interoperability was not the reason that uh, like Blackboard or, uh, or Angel or whatever lost market share. It wasn't, it wasn't because the other one did it and they didn't do it or that they did it and the other one did it and that means they could transfer, transferring a piece of software like Piazza from one LMS to the other LMS, that's just assumed and it turned out it, then it, it almost meant nothing to the actual decision about what your next learning management system was going to be. And so, so it, it, it turned out really cool. Now, uh, fast forward to 2019, I mean, so 2000, it, LTI was like the king of the marketplace for about a decade and still is. And um, we've finally, we've had several fits and starts to make a next version of it. We even had an LTI 2 that we threw away. There's okay. a thing called LTI Advantage that um, dramatically improved it um, in ways that uh, really benefits uh, the, the tools. The tools are going to, over the next three to five years, become much more powerful. Um, and the tools in LTI 1.1, um, the tools were like of at the whim and the mercy of the learning management system. If the learning management system didn't want the tool to know something, then it wouldn't. Whereas now the learning management system is like uh, making so many services available to the tools that the tools can make grade book columns and do these other things and get rosters and do these things that are just, and so you're going to be able to build almost entire learning systems outside the learning system. And now you have sort of learning systems that, that are not really the enterprise learning system fighting with like the Pearson learning system or the McGraw-Hill learning system or whatever. So now you actually have a, a, a bit of a struggle for the, the hearts and minds of the teachers where these external tools now um, have a lot more power than they did before. Now, that just was finished in June and we're just getting the first few products out. And so the, the, the extent to which it's going to upset the marketplace is not yet really starting to show. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, I, my prediction is, is that when this LTI advantage becomes, um, when the LTI advantage becomes much more uh, universally used by both the tools, I think we'll ultimately find it's not going to uh, result in a shift, a, a greater shift in market share. Uh, mm -hmm. what it's going to do is actually going to uh, reinforce the current market share because the enterprise system that you have will be so eminently pluggable by all the vendors that you'll just keep it and you will pay a ton of money for product that you use less and less and less and less. And then you pay a bunch of money for these things that you build outside hmm. and your, your costs are going to go up because your enterprise LMS vendor is never going to drop the price. They're still really important because there's, there was where everything plugs in. So I think for a while, it will get more what teachers want, but it'll cost a lot more um, for all these things to, to work together well. And, and for me, I just want open source solutions to all these things. So I like, I'll make a free enterprise learning management system and I'll make a bunch of free apps. And, mm -hmm. and, but, but unfortunately, I don't have a personally a billion dollars to spend on this. I just have like nights and weekends to spend on this. And so, so my own progress toward this, uh, this, this perfect future is just limited because there just aren't that many courageous people that sort of want to help with an open source version of this future. Mm -hmm. They'll just wait till Pearson shows up and charges them a bunch of money and they'll do what I would do for free. Um, but then they won't have to think about it. It takes courage to say, that's a cool vision. I want to go down that path with you. It takes a lot of courage um, for a university to, to, to bet on something that right now is really small I mean, I do have a history of one, $2 billion change in the market, but apparently that don't count to people. Um, I have a history of seeing the future 10 years in advance, but apparently that don't count to people, right? right? It's like, nobody listens to me. They're like, oh, Chuck, you're the crazy one. 
And that's how you are 10 years. Like you, you 10 years out, you just got to be a little bit wacky to predict what it's going to be like in 10 years. So. Mm. No, I, I love it. How does, how does Sugi fit in there? That's, that's part of the learning management, right? Yeah, no, Sakai is the enterprise open source enterprise learning management system and Sugi is the open source uh, app store. Okay. Right? So, so what I'm trying to do in our, our open, our entire open source community is, is advance both sides of this sort of like one LMS that has all your classes in it and all your grades in it and every single student and then a bunch of cool tools and widgets that you pull into that LMS. I want to I want to make it possible so that a school can do um, top shelf, high production quality work and in a hundred percent open source solution. And so, if no one wants to do one hundred percent open source solution, um, that's okay. I feel it is somehow my duty to make it available. And mm -hmm. thankfully, there's a few courageous schools that are willing to go one hundred percent open source on this. And um, and, and so I have enough people. We have enough people. We're healthy. We're healthy open source communities. We keep cruising along. It's just, I mean, every year that we keep going, it kind of amazes me that, you know, if you sort of read all the PR and you look at all the bar charts and stuff, mm -hmm. like, shouldn't, shouldn't we be dead already? And the answer is no, we're not dead. We're having a great time. We're releasing right. software. We're fixing bugs. We're meeting user requirements. Um, but the commercial folks come in and say, you know, that's a lot of responsibility to do open source. Why don't you just take the easy route out? It's us. Hmm. And we're good folk. You know, we're like you. We're just good folk. And you can just relax, go to a conference once a year, and have really great entertainment at our conference, and we'll take care of everything. Just write a million-dollar check a year, right. and you can keep your jobs and relax. And, you know, you're getting <laughs> sleepy. Relax. You don't need to think anymore. Just take money. Give me money, and I will let you sleep the sleep of the unknowing. Mm. And this is where I go back to what they've done: is while the people at the non-courageous people at these universities, non-informed, non-courageous people at these universities, are enjoying their reduced responsibilities and ability to just go to a party once a year, mm. they are then giving that data out the back door, and so. If there was a way, whether it was open source or not, I think the real battlefront is the privacy and the loss of educational data, um, you know, like Cambridge Analytica was for social data. That, that's the real battle. And so that's the thing that keeps me typing on this keyboard every day to, keep, to make sure that when the world finally realizes that they've been hoodwinked from a privacy perspective by all these commercial vendors, that they're like, you know, maybe wouldn't it be great if we had an alternative that didn't require us to give the, the homework of every single kid that we've ever had on this campus to a third party? Wouldn't it be great if we had that? And I'm like, yeah, matter of fact, we've been here all along <laughs> and you sure haven't helped us very much, but uh, we love you and we're welcoming you back to the, commu the, the community of the people who are woke again. Right. And so, and so I think that when Sakai started in 2004, Blackboard was kind of like this oppressive organization and people wanted they, they, they became woke and they came running to us and because the blackboard was too oppressive. Right. Mm. And, um, I think that what will, I think the market will realize the amount of oppression that they're under in the name of their own convenience, that their lack of choices and their lack of control over their data will ultimately, someone will wake up and, it's, and they'll be woke. Right. So it's like, like, Whoa, you're right. We are given all this. Whoa, we have no control. 
Hmm. And so then, you know, I'm hoping that we'll still be around at the time where everyone gets woke up and actually wants control of their, their campus data. Yeah, that, that was the other part of my question, I guess, is what would it take for something like Sugi to take off or maybe that's not the first place for it to start? Like, like to get, you know, like 50% or more of the market share, for example. Like how, how would that, what, what would it take, I guess? So, so un- unfortunately, the, it, the open source needs people to adopt it in its, in its sort of um, larval form. Right. I mean, Sugi is not a butterfly. Sugi is just kind of a larva in a thing and it has all this potential. And in looking at Sakai, the way Sakai got better was not that one school built it and handed it off. One school built a mediocre product and then a bunch of schools got so excited that they adopted a mediocre product, mediocre product without really looking too closely. And maybe if they had looked too closely, they'd be like, oh, wait a sec, let's run, 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 run. It's not perfect. Let's go off to this. That's not, we didn't look very close. We just right. disliked what we had before so bad that we jumped at the first thing that came along and that was, that was us. And then they wake up and they're like, whoa, this product could use a little help. And then what they did was they helped. And then what you get is a diverse community of people who are bought into the idea that we ought to fix it for everybody. Mm-hmm. And then that drives you to a much more beautiful product, a much more responsive product that responds to the needs of the market. Because if one person or one organization builds something and it doesn't get adopted, I mean, Sugi and all this stuff, it makes me really happy. I mean, I couldn't be happier using this software that I'm using. It's the basis for all the courses I teach. It's the basis for the world's largest programming course, Python for everybody. It's the, it has made me so much money. I'm, it makes me happy. But these fingers are tending to write software that meets my needs. Mm-hmm. And And when other schools start adopting my software to say, this Chuck did a pretty good job of the first 25% of this. And he's a really terrible user interface designer, (laughs) but we got some good interface designers. We like what he's done. And so we're going to come back and say, Chuck, we got to clean all this. It's terrible. It's really bad. You're, and I'm not a user interface designer. I don't have any sense of crap. I mean, my stuff works. It doesn't blow up, but it's not, it's also not pretty. I mean, just about anybody on the planet is prettier than me. And until somebody adopts my software, I'm not going to become smarter. I'm not going to learn how to make pretty software. Somebody has to accept that this software is incomplete and, and then just take a risk. And that comes back to courage. The courage mm-hmm. to say, you know what? Maybe Chuck can't do it all by himself in Sugi, but I think it's good enough that I can step in and then some load will fall to me. And that's the courage part. Like, do you have the courage that when you start doing something, it's going to get harder before it gets easier? Mm-hmm. but in that you gain control in that you have control of your destiny. And I've been thinking a lot about this across a lot of things, right? Like book publishing, mm-hmm. like, like journal publishing, like open source software, like and, and, and higher education over and over and over again, takes the non-courageous laziest way out of these things and then rationalizes it, calls it best practice. But if all of a sudden you wanted to stop using Elsevier to build journals, there are people doing it, just like me. I'm on an editorial board of a completely open journal, and it's working really hard, but nobody helps them. There's no resources. Nobody, nobody like, no Gates Foundation says, you know what? That's the way the future ought to be. Here's $100,000 a year so you can hire, a, like, an actual editor to edit the stuff and a, a product manager, project manager, so poor, poor pre-tenure faculty don't have to sit 
and look through the queue of in, incoming things and make sure that their articles are reviewed the right way. Mm. Nobody helps, right? Mm. There's models for all these things. A book publishing, holy mackerel, it's easy to publish a book right now. But do you think there are anybody in, like, in my library that would help me build a book cover? Anybody in my library that would help me find someone to review my book? No, they don't. There, there's the amount of, of value add that publishers give for books, for journals, they're terrible, right? Let me give you, let me, let me tell you a happy story, okay? I'm all grumpy today. I don't know how much time we have left, so I should tell you a happy story, right? Okay, yeah. <laughs> online education, about, mm-hmm. about online education. So there's a lot of schools that, that fall in with a bad crowd, and they meet these companies called OPM, like off-premises management. And what they say is, you don't know nothing about online education. Uh, we'll talk to your faculty. We'll stick them in studios. We'll tape, film them. We'll cut up the things and we'll make all these things. And then we'll find students. And we'll sell your stuff to students and we'll give you 25% of the profits. And you got to sell it, sell it, say, sign a 10 year exclusive contract. That says you won't do any online education for anybody else. And again, these same administrators with no technical ability and with no courage go like, you know what? Everyone's getting into this online education. And I don't even know first thing about online education sign here. And then like they just, they throw away the seed corn of their university's brand in the online space for a decade. I mean, hmm. I know these, I know these schools, I know they're like, I know them and they're like, we're just like on the sidelines for 10 years because we signed this contract with this company that's actually not making us all that much money. Hmm. And then you take a school like mine, my school has plenty of situations where there's lack of courage, but in the online education, there is courage, ex- excess courage in that, and I'm happy to be part of it. And if you look at how difficult it is for the University of Michigan to hire and staff television studios for online education, instructional designers, servers, people that like once the courses start, like when things go wrong, they stand there and they fix it all. The, the key to it is, is that you can start a project like this, and it's always going to get harder before it gets easier. Mm. And so that's where the courage comes in. The courage is like, oh, this is really fun. This is really fun. Oh man, it's harder now. Do we quit or do we find more resources or do we outsource? And the courage, the courageous thing is to not quit, not outsource, to find more resource and then maintain the control of your organization, right? Maintain the control of your brand, maintain the control of your organization, maintain the destiny, maintain everything about it. And it's very costly to not take the easy path. It, it's very costly to take the courageous path. And, you know, hmm. when we built Sakai, I was at a, at a place that took the courageous path and it was ex- exquisite. It was absolutely exquisite, but it was also painful for the people who had to keep doubling down every time. It was like, oh crap, we thought we were done. Nope, time to double down. And we're doing the same thing when we're building online education. But I would I'd venture to say that my school is perhaps the best school in the world at online education. Why? because we did it the hard way. We took full responsibility for everything and people look to us now for leadership. And I find that really exciting. And in online education, my university is showing no signs of like blinking, like, Oh, that hurt. Oh no, let's hire three more people. Let's just go. Cause whatever this future is, I don't know what it is, but we ought to be part of it and we ought to be leading it. We ought to be in front of it. And so I think hmm. for book publishing, for journal publishing, for open source software, for online education, any decision to outsource any of that is a horrible decision in this day and age if you are a school that feels like you want to be a leader. 
Hmm. Now I, I love it. It's there's so much like nuggets for life in there too. I mean, yes. so, I mean, I, I probably don't even need to say it, but I'll, I'll just like reiterate this one point. Like it's just, uh, it, it's amazing how like, like courage is, um, like our bodies are designed to go for like this route. That's like the path of least resistance, but the answer is to run into the resistance. Like I'm constantly reminded of this in my own life. And if there's some way you can just drink that Kool-Aid, you know, 20, 50 years later, like where will you land if you chase after the resistance? I, I mean, it just, it just gives me goosebumps to think about it. There's there's the commercials that says there's chaos. Some people are running towards it. Most people are running away from it. The people running towards it, they're the leaders. And and I've done that in my life enough times, sometimes with a large army of my, my pals along with me, thankfully, other times, uh, very lonely, right. All by myself. And, um, it's not, it's not so much that the, the satisfaction in some ways is not so much that you somehow win or lose. The satisfaction is if you take the courageous path, it's always interesting. I mean, it just has been interesting when I've been part of courageous organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's just like, it's easy to be like sheep and do what everybody else does and just say like, I just want to go home on the weekends. Um, you know, it, it, the courageous path is so interesting and so fascinating and it's not ever quite where you thought it was going to lead. It just never is what you thought, but unless you're sort of in the battle, unless you're sort of like advancing, you, you don't see the real objective. And so it's rare that you, it's just like in Sakai when we started, we had an objective in 2004 and we're like, go. And we, and we just, we just, we just, turn on the afterburners and we were going to go towards hundred percent market domination. And it turned out that that was impossible. Hmm. But what we then did was completely transformed education by this plugin thing, which initially was just like a little side hobby that we had. I love but ultimately it. it's the real impact. And yeah. that's kind of like research, right? When I remember when I did my PhD thesis, I kind of thought I had a plan. And then the things that turn out to be the interesting problems are the things that you see out of the corners of your eye. And you're like, oh, wait a sec. On this road that I have all planned, wow, that's an interesting problem. Hmm. Let me just take a little, oh, wait a sec. Turns out that's the problem after all. And that thing I was going after, everyone's going after that. Turns out it's not even the right place because you don't even know where you're going. And Hmm. so the joy of taking the courageous path is that you find your way to the future a lot faster. And then everyone shows up and follows you afterwards too. But you got to take the courageous path and it often doesn't lead where you thought it would lead, mm-hmm. but you get to the future before everyone else, just because you're just, just grinding away and, and pushing. Man, I, I love it so much. This is uh, we, we definitely came up on our hour real quick and there's some, more th- there's some more things I want to get to, but seriously, thank you so much for sharing. Like the selfish side of me is just super excited about the conversation we have, but I'm sure people are going to get a ton of value out of this. Um, there, there was one, okay. So before we move on to kind of like the wine, the wind down piece, I, I literally have, we covered like 10% of the questions I had for you. So we, sorry, no, it's, it's, uh, I, I gotta let you speak. This is the whole, this is the whole value add here. So how, um, how has the mentality of focusing on good work, good values and good heart? How is that, um, that mentality where those supersede a good plan? 
how's that, how has that served you well in your life? Absolutely. So, I mean, I agree with, I agree with the hypothesis. Um, planning is overrated, right? Planning is vastly overrated effort, energy, and then flexibility are what, uh, lead to it. Um, probably the, the best example that I have that, that demonstrates that is, um, my Python course. Um, I, my goal with the Python course was to give it away. I make the license for free. I build a website for free. I'm like, just please take this, please take this, please take this. It's free. It's all free. It's all free. Mm -hmm. And the licensing of it is so, and like, you know, there's people in India that grab my stuff and put my course up, you know, and someone would say, well, go get them. You're whatever. And, and so for the past six or seven years, I've done nothing but try to give this away. And this has led to me making more money on, on this than anything I've ever made money on. Hmm. And no matter how I try to not make money on this, the money seems to come in. <laughs> Seriously. How, how does it get? I, I, make, do, I, don't, I make decisions. Yeah. We're, like we're making a decision about how to tweak our Coursera arrangement. I'm thinking, I'm like, well, that's kind of drop revenue 25%. I don't care because it's the right thing to do pedagogically. But it seems like I screw up on that all the time and it just increases revenue because then you do the right thing and then revenue goes up. I'm like, what? Like, I don't, I can't predict anything. I'm kind of a complete fool. I, I, and so, and, and, and the reason that that turns out to work, it's that, it's that peripheral vision again. If you're looking at the money, then you don't see the thing that actually matters in the peripheral vision, right? And, and so you've got to be ready to, to, to shift. And if you've got a plan, then you're not ready to shift. And the, the future is to the agile. And that doesn't just mean agile with a capital A, go buy a bunch of books. I mean, I don't like to agile either, by the way, just in case you didn't know that. So okay. the future is to those who can move in an agile manner, not those who can read agile books, but move in an agile manner and, and, and find a seam in this world, in this market, find a market that you couldn't even imagine before you started. But if you just wait for someone to tell you what the market is, then it's way too late. I mean, I, that's why I just give away all my secrets, but it's too late for you to use my secrets. I don't even know what my next secrets are. All I know is I'm running as fast as I can towards the future. Mm -hmm. And then I will figure out what those secrets are. And then we'll have another podcast in a couple of years. And I'm like, oh, that worked out pretty well. And here's the secrets. I don't know them now, right. but I will then. And so the key is to just keep pedaling and keep going as fast as you can. No, that's, that's fantastic. And you've, you've brought this up a couple of times, like, how, how does that work? Cause I've heard of that fear of like, okay, if I'm getting into open source, I'm, I'm basically relinquishing control of like being able to, to monetize anything. Whoa, so, that's like so wrong. Okay. So what's left to monetize then? Can you, can you share that? Absolutely. So, um, people who adopt open source often want to change it. And so, so that it's not, no piece of software that's standing still is worth anything. So you can say, oh, download the software, run, I got it, my precious, right? And, but, <laughs> but if you take this software, you install it and you show it to your faculty and the faculty say, we need a, the poll tool to have three more features that are over here. And, and then you're like, oh, that'd be cool. I could either hire a five Java developers in my organization or I would pay someone $50,000 to write that and put it in the trunk. And so, there's tons of people that make money off of Sakai because the customers want something and they get hired. 
and the customers get what they want. They write a check that's way less than the check they write for a complete com a product. They write checks for the change. And then we go to our annual conference and they say, Here, here's, our, here's our latest discussion tool. And people are like, really? Oh, yeah, that's yeah, free. You can all have it, right? And so, and so what you find is that it's not the intellectual property that's the value. It's the change to it that's the value, the services around it, the ability to ask questions, the ability to figure it out. That's all monetizable, right? And, um, and so you, you just have to realize that the actual intellectual property asset itself, I mean, you, don't, it is, you, you can't sell your company if you don't have an intellectual property asset. But if your goal is not to sell your company, then, and your goal is to just do good work and be paid well for it, open source is a fine business model. Um, mm. But if your goal is to be a billionaire and screw all your other co-employees when you go public and you get a Tesla and they get screwed because they believed in your vision, well, then you shouldn't do open source at that point because what you need is a, a piece of intellectual property asset that's all rights reserved that you can hand to the next person along with all the customers who are addicted to every feature in that product, mm -hmm. right? And that is an asset. The customers are assets, the customer's data is an asset, the intellectual property is an asset. And so you're not really earning your, earning your keep every single day. But in open source, those of us in open source, we have to earn our keep every single day based on our value moving us forward in the future. You can't just say, well, I got it and I'm just going to sit on it. Mm. And there's a lot of commercial vendors in the ed tech marketplace that just sit on something because they, they did good. They made, they figured something out, they put it out there and they're like, People bought this, they're month for it must be perfect and I better not change it. And so that's, there's a lot of that in ed tech is there's no evolution, there's no change. They just sit on their assets. And so that's the key to, key to it is that you cannot get outrageous profits in open source. Mm -hmm. You can't sell, you'll never sell an open source company for a billion dollars unless there's some closed source aspect to it. But you can have lots and lots and lots of people making really good and enjoyable livings in the open source community. There's lots of 10 to 30 person companies in, that are working in open source kind of areas that are having the time of their lives and living a good life, making good income, but don't have any dreams for a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I, can, I mean, I'm thinking of lots of companies that I've met that are just like 30 people. And if they could keep those 30 people fed and traveling and a new laptop once in a while and a great bunch of people to work with, do you really need to be a billionaire? Because in these companies, only two people become billionaires, right? The average person working at those companies did not become a billionaire. Right. You know, one becomes a billionaire and like 12 more become millionaires. And then it's pretty drops off pretty fast after that. And so you spent your whole life making someone else a billionaire. Hmm. So, Yeah. There's plenty of money to be made, but it's in the, it's in the forward movement. It's not in the possession. Yeah. I think it's finally clicking for me. Maybe, maybe you've been like telling me this over and over throughout this whole call, but it, I think it finally clicked. And that is like the, the whole, the whole um, kind of like jet fuel for open sources. You get the faster you run towards the future. That's where the value add is. Yes. And intellectual property. It's like you're, it's almost the um, uh, exhaust. Yeah, <laughs> it's the exhaust. It's coming out the back. Crazy it has its concept. purpose. It has its purpose, but not for long. Oh wow! It's a uh, oh, yeah, innovation I is the. I hadn't thought of it. You said it great. Innovation is the jet fuel. The the eagerness to to be in the future is the jet fuel. The intellectual property is just kind of the exhaust. Oh, man, it's important that's... because we actually run the intellectual property in production. Right. But like in three months, there's a new release. So whatever that yeah. was, 
that's just <laughs> making <laughs> contrails in the sky. Oh, that's amazing. And then yeah. it's, it's crazy because the people that are latching on to the intellectual property, it's like you're almost doomed uh, in, in a way because you're latching onto this thing. And then there's people out there that are reaching to the future. And then the people that are kind of like latching onto this are using their money to build the, the barriers around the people that are trying to consume that jet fuel. It's like, it's seriously like, uh, like the battle, battle of like good versus evil or something. Oh, like it that. is the battle versus good versus evil. No question about that. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, it's yeah. Crazy. It's, yeah. And, and the key thing is, is those who have amassed enough money can spend 25 to 30% of their money on marketing. Mm-hmm. And the marketing is to just what you said. It's to build fences around the sheep and throw sheep food into the fences, right? We yeah. call those summer conferences for each of the vendors, <laughs> right? Where they herd all the sheep together and they feed them. Right. They don't kill them. They just cut their sheep fur off and go make sweaters with them. Yeah. So, so, so that, yeah. And, 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 and so the intellectual property people, innovation isn't, they're not really well suited for innovation because they fear the future because they think they have a great product. They don't want to upset their current good deal with a half a billion dollars worth of revenue. And so unless you're a teacher and you're like, it's got to happen. If you're a business person, you go like, no, no, it doesn't have to happen. You made <laughs> a half a billion dollars last year. Do you understand? And it's innovator's dilemma, right? Another, it, you could think of it as innovator's dilemma, right? You're not allowed to have a new idea unless it's going to give your company 20% more revenue. It's like, well, that means you're going to have no new ideas, but eventually you're going to die by the little guy. Whereas open source, sadly, is always the little guy, <laughs> right? Always moving toward the future and in a sense, spinning off successful commercial ventures that never pay us the money back steal all our ideas and um but yeah it's okay it's fun to be with the people who are addicted to jet fuel yeah oh man that's that is fantastic i um man i i we need we need to uh, meet up again in a couple uh you know some episodes down the down the line i am uh i am super excited to have you on the show just sharing your sharing your brain this is awesome (laughs) i could do this all night but i know we can't (laughs) No, this is, this is great. So um, I know that rest and focus is a daily non-negotiable for you. Do you have any advice for people that are struggling with that? Um, absolutely. Um, so, that, so that I would say that my, um, my superpower is to not have a superpower. And in particular, I am the world's worst multitasker. And people say, how do you get so much done? And I say, I do them one thing at a time. And there is no greater joy in my life. And I love being a faculty member because that means in the summer, I can spend two weeks on one thing and make amazing progress. Two weeks on the other thing, make amazing progress. Like I'll spend two weeks on Sakai and then I will not do anything on Sakai and spend two weeks on Sugi. I don't spend two weeks writing, writing about privacy. Then I, so I am not a multitasker. I find multitasking to turn me into mush. And so what I do is I basically say this week is going to be to work on this thing. And, um, and, and then what I do is if, if my brain gets tired, I go take a nap. Anytime, day or night, I go take a nap. I relax. I go take a walk and accept the fact that you can't go at peak speed all the time, that you need some space and time. And, um, and what I find is the best is I'll – work for a day and I'll struggle with a problem. And I'm like, time to go to sleep. It's just, it's nine o'clock. Let's go to sleep. Just go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And then you wake up in the morning and that problem is just can't fly, can't fly out of your fingers fast enough. 
So it wouldn't have been very efficient for me to beat myself with caffeine. I do like caffeine anyways, but <laughs> you just don't need to beat yourself. There's a moment at which your brain is like not responding. You go to sleep and you wake up in the morning. Now, the, the problem is, is that how do you explain that to a company that's paying you, right? That, that you want this thing done by Friday. And it's like, you know what? I, if I give this to you by Friday, I will give you the wrong. You can't say this, but if, if you forced me to finish this by Friday, I will give you a bad solution. And I have bad solutions in my head, <laughs> but if I get a good night's sleep and I can wait till Monday, by noon on Monday, I will have a good solution. Right. And so I have been um, blessed in that I have, have had a job that has allowed me these uninterrupted chunks of time that include sleep. Mm. And, um, and if I've done anything clever, it's because I've slept a lot and taken naps and not tried to be the classic, uh, crazy type a person banging on the keyboard 24 hours a day. Hmm. So I recommend that. <laughs> I love it. Thanks for sharing. And uh, I, ha I have two, actually two questions before I jump into the wind down. And one was how, uh, what advice do you have for somebody to get on, like uh, get their content on Amazon prime? Well, uh, the, the video. Uh, yep. prime, yeah. Well, I, I luckily have friends at Amazon and they were, uh, it was early days and they, um, they, they, they kind of mentored me through the process. I would say that Amazon Prime was one of the more difficult video production things. Um, and that's because they think of themselves as Netflix, right? So Netflix will say, we are not putting anything in Netflix that's not 4K. Like, mm -hmm. does anybody care? And so they, they have all these kind of very, as if you're uh, producing Gilligan's Island or something that you're a, your Universal Studios and you're making a bunch of half hour footage and whatever. And so their expectations of like your titles and the number of pixels in your titles and got to go back to the graphic arts and do that. And they said things like you can't have URLs in your slides because you might be marketing something that we don't realize that you're marketing and, and you can't put URLs in your description. And so I would say that Amazon Prime was uh, very challenging and I had a friend on the inside and I, I would say ultimately it worked out um, like anything, like even Create Space or Kindle Direct Publishing. Um, eventually, they're, they want your content, right? They're not telling you no because they hate you. Um, they just don't want to produce a product that then they have to refund people's money because they complain all the time. Mm. And so, you know, Amazon Prime Video was the, something I did at the very, very, very end. And I, um, I, I was very conservative and I put a ton of time in on it. Um, it hasn't made me a bunch of money, um, but I don't care because it's that future bit, right? I mean, I'm, I'm there right with the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I'm in the same place. Here's yep. a thing that you can do. I don't know if you have Comcast. Hmm. Okay, or we'll, we do in our area, but yeah. We'll go over to somebody's house that says Comcast. Okay. And hit the voice activated thing in your Comcast and say, YouTube. Python for everybody and see what happens. And, we'll and then you're like, hmm. And it turns out the thing, so what you see if you say YouTube Python for everybody, it's not a video I produced. Hmm. It's actually a video that Free Code Camp produced where I gave them all my footage for absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. Right? I'm like, here's this stuff and it's very valuable to me and it's making me plenty of money. I'm, I like your work. I think your free code camp are great folk. I handed it to them. It turns out that they know more about getting you to the top of the YouTube search engine than you could possibly imagine. Hmm. So yeah, I could have kept it all to myself, 
I did not plan to be at the top of the YouTube search engine for the term Python for everybody so that you could say that in the Comcast. I was, that wasn't my plan. I just know Bo and I said, Bo, I'd help you out. I'll give you some stuff. I mean, I, I don't care. It doesn't hurt me to give you some stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was downstairs and I said that into Comcast and like hit the button and I'm, I'm talking. I'm like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> and so, you know, and that, and that was just not, not fearing, not being my precious, my precious, my precious on the intellectual property of my videos. I had to actually drive to hand them a four gig drive of the super high quality videos that then they edited together and put up in their channel. Yeah. And I'm going to get, I don't, I don't know what it is, but I know I'm going to get benefit out of that. I don't, I mean, exposure, exposure, exposure. And it's, I do want to make it so that you can't turn around and, and say the word Python and not see me somewhere <laughs> in the picture. No, that's, that's actually the first, I wanted to bring up the Amazon thing. Cause that's actually where I first found you. I was wandering wow. around and I was like, this is crazy. There's like Python stuff on the Amazon video. And I started digging into it in pre-code camp. Like there's so many awesome resources on there. And I saw you had the 14 hour tutorial and I was just that's like, a free code cam one I'm talking about. Yeah, that's awesome. Turns out that 14 hour videos are, they confuse the YouTube ranking algorithm really badly. Oh, wow. That's the trick. <laughs> I would have never thought of it. I gave it to some people who had a clever idea and yeah. I'm just now riding with them, riding on, on the free code camps river and they're smart folks. You know, and free code camp does not stop people from going to Coursera or edX or anywhere else paying for certificates. Mm -hmm. It hasn't hurt anybody. Matter of fact, people find it on free code camp. They want a certificate. They go to Coursera. We're getting more out of it. Right. I mean, you just don't lose when you free your intellectual property. The abundance mindset, it just, it, there's just so much to lose if you don't acquire this mindset. This is, this is a reoccurring theme with guests on the show that have this abundance mindset. It's like, their, 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 um, project, like where they're going to land at the end of their life is a whole different place than people that have this, like, you know, my precious kind of attitude that, I mean, th- that's what I'm seeing out of my peripheral vision and why I love doing these podcasts so much. Cause I get to just see it firsthand and see these patterns. So thank you so much for sharing. That is fantastic. Okay. So, um, any advice for Python programmers to help them monetize their skills? So this is advice that I give to all my students. Um, and so it's not particularly unique to your show, but um, the, the, the key problem that beginning programmers have in general, and most beginning programmers these days are Python programmers, is that it is difficult for companies to post beginning, uh, beginning uh, uh, positions. So if you're in Seattle and you want to hire a beginning programmer in Python and you put out an ad for a person who has had one semester of Python, $40,000 a year job to help with some simple data mining scripts, they would get... 4,000 applications of totally qualified people and have no way of figuring out which of the 4,000 people to hire. Hmm. So they, so no one tends to post positions for which they don't have lots of requirements for, because there's just no good way to sort through all the, all the resumes. So they post more advanced positions and just kind of do it with more advanced people. And then, and these poor beginning Python programmers just aren't seeing clean positions. So what I tell people to do is I say, the thing to do is to, go where Python, professional Python programmers might be. Go to meetups, go to PyCon. Go to PyCon and go to the board that has the job board and look there, right? Sit at tables um, and, and what you'll, just listen. And, and after a while, someone will say, man, we just can't hire Python programmers, man, we can't hire them. And you're like, I know Python and I'd work for $40,000, absolutely. Really? We just can't find them. 
And the problem is, is this is sort of an engineering lead that can't find them because the HR people won't post the position that will get 4,000 people because it just doesn't work. And then you, you're sitting there at the meetup in Seattle over coffee and the engineer says, well, why don't you come down on Tuesday and we'll see. I mean, I, you, you seem like you know a lot of stuff. I've seen you here a couple of times. You know, you didn't give a talk last week and then you got a job, right? And you bypass the whole thing of HR and whatever. And so, uh, and I have heard from my students as I meet them around the world that this happens, that just by rubbing shoulders long enough, they're just like, are you kidding me that you don't really, you're not working? You're not in this, you're just like hanging out? We need somebody like you, come on down, right? And so there's, there's just, it's, it's, it's just amazing. And the other thing that people tend to find is that there are more opportunities to use software in, the, in existing jobs, whether it's sales or management or maybe you're running parts for a car store and all of a sudden you can use Python to make some process better, right? And so don't underestimate the value of changing your job in your company to use those skills to just do your current job better. And then that gives you that pill, that pill that you mentioned earlier to say, you know what, there's an internal posting and they're asking for a senior person and I don't quite know everything, but I do know some of it. Let me just go talk to that person because I'm not afraid, right? right? This is the fearless pill that you talked about before. Mm-hmm but you've done it. You're like, you know, I, I don't know this thing that you're talking about natural language toolkit, but I, I did write this little thing that builds reports on the, on the sales data that I'm, that I do every week. Cause I'm an administrative assistant for the, the marketing person. And I, you know, instead of doing it by hand, I wrote this little Python program. I'm like, you know what? Natural language processing isn't all that hard. You know, let's give it a try. Let's bring you over and see what, so, so it's, it's this thing where you like, I am Python programmer and they're going to come to my house, knock on the door and say, you're now a Python programmer. We're going to hire you. It doesn't work like that. It's a, it's a much gentler kind of a flow kind of thing where you find this little seam that, that fits you really well and in you go. And, and, and I think this is, goes back to kind of transforming the world, right? It's not like we're going to make a bunch of Python programmers and then there's going to be this long line out the door of a thousand people like Python programmers wanted. I mean, it's going to change in, in a more of an osmosis way that skilled people will find skilled jobs or they'll even change the jobs that they're in um, mm. rather than just like there are jobs you go hire you go pay you go get those jobs there it's very rare that there's just a bunch of jobs that have a nice job description that exactly matches you etc 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 you just go and find a fit and then evolve to fit better fantastic thanks for sharing that and i had a question for you what kind of hobbies do you like outside of programming well, so my current crazy hobby is uh, racing, racing cars. Okay. And, um, and, and I got into car racing because there's this really weird racing series called the 24 Hours of Lemons. And okay. It, and it's a play on the word 24 Hours of Le Mans, where some would say the 24 Hours of Le Mans, Le Mans is the most prestigious racing that you can do. And the 24 hours of lemons, his goal is to be the least prestigious racing that you can do. And so the idea in the 24 hours of lemons, and you know, you spend a billion dollars to make a race car in the 24 hours of Le Mans, 24 hours of lemons, you spend $500 plus $3,000 worth of safety equipment and get your butt on a track. You don't need any training. You don't need a license. You don't need any experience. You need one, one hour rookie meeting and you're on a track. And it's very much like open source. The goal turns out, to not be to win. 
every race that every racing that I've ever seen, everybody wants to win. In 24 Hours of Lemons, the goal is to participate and enjoy yourself. So the way it works is to race a weekend on a real race course with real race cars going as fast as they can go around corners and down straightaways. Um, it costs you $1,500 to take a team. And if you win, you get $500 because <laughs> that's the point. Right. People want to win. It's kind of like open source, right? The, the point, it's okay to achieve something and you're like success. And that's people when they're like very emotional. I mean, there's a hundred cars on the track. And if you win, that, that means you've done pretty, it's an endurance race, so it lasts over two days. And people, people win for the first time after doing it for 10 years, and they're, they're quite emotional, like, because like, they've, they've been learning this. But if you don't win, you know, it's not like you're like devastated because you had a good weekend with a car going around fast on a racetrack. And uh, so I really, I really enjoy it. Cool. That's, that sounds like a lot of fun. It is. It is. I use, I use my revenue from the software that uh, my course that I try to give away is now giving me enough revenue to afford the race car. So I picked up racing. I love it. There, there's just so much awesome in that. I, I can't, I can't find the words to describe it beyond that. <laughs> what is the, what is the best advice that you've ever received? Work harder, not smarter. Awesome. No, I got that backwards. Work smarter, not harder. It's been a long time. I forgot it. No, work smarter, <laughs> not harder. Okay. That's the best advice I ever got. Hmm. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. And best non-technical book you have ever read. I don't read a lot. I don't have time. I'm busy writing open source software. Mm -hmm. Best non-technical book I've ever read. I'm trying to look at It'll come to me afterwards, but I can't for the life of me tell you the best non-technical book I've ever read. For, for a large part of my life, I wrote more books than I read on average per year. <laughs> that's, that's pretty wild. Um, let's try this one. Best video game ever made. Uh, this one's a weird one. <laughs> it's a game called Scramble. It is a, it's from the seventies and it was this uh, rocket ship that would move through these things that you just had to drive the rocket ship and avoid stuff and pick up stuff and do whatever it's, it's called scramble. I'm sure you can, I'm sure there's a Wikipedia on it. Uh, I spent a summer of my life trying to make it all the way through the first <laughs> level of that scramble game. And um, it wasn't, it wasn't violent. It wasn't shooting. It was a it was a study in being Zen about like doing it right and having good rhythm, and you just it was a, it was a very one in the machine and you'd get you know and and so it wasn't it wasn't it did the same thing every time and eventually you would find the exact pixel at which time it was to time to go down and and then you would crash and then you would find the next like fifty pixels that you figured out so yeah I would scramble. say scramble awesome. Thanks for sharing. And last question, new programming languages for people to check out. What do you think should be on the radar for 2020 and beyond? So, um, so I actually think that we're going to see a reduction in languages. Um, I've written about this, that um, often we, um, a new language is successful because of the libraries that it has. 
-hmm. And so, you know, I need a library to do natural language processing. So therefore I'm going to use X, Y, Z that that library happened to be written in. Right. And so we, we had lots of languages. And so people wrote lots of cool libraries in lots of languages. But I think what we're seeing is that that, that factor in languages going forward is, is less significant in that everyone just writes Python libraries now. And so it, so, so Python is just kind of like this, this ever expanding blob that absorbs application areas because people build libraries for Python and it's easier to build a library for Python than to build another language and a library and then convince people to learn that language just so they can use your library. Hmm. So that is going to take away a lot. I, I do think that um, the language that I can't get out of my head right now, even though I haven't used it is Julia. Um, and I think that the, the language that, that, that there's not many more languages that will come out and like wow us. I mean, I think the comp, you know, Ruby, I mean, I think that uh, Python and uh, JavaScript and Java and C and C Sharp and C++, I think they cover a lot really, really well and they're evolving still. Mm -hmm. um, I do think that the one problem we face in languages, and this is why Julia is kind of interesting to me, is the, the ability to write a one million line program in Python. I think it's impossible to write a one million line program in, a complete, in an untyped language. Hmm. And, but at the same time, typed languages are too difficult for beginners to use. And so do you really like start in Python and then stick them in Java? Cause I don't know, that's a painful process. Start in Python, learn C++. No. And so I look at all those transition from the joy of Python to the pain of Java or the joy of Python to the pain of C sharp or the joy of Java, uh, Python to the joy of C++. I'm like, there's gotta be something that allows us to build the kinds of complex applications that C++, C Sharp, Java allow us to build, but it doesn't have to be a different language that beginners learn and has lots of library support. And so that to me, when we see it, it will be one that has ease of use for beginners. Like look at Java, you got like static main parenthesis, a bunch of curly braces just to say hello world. I mean, Java can't be a successful language because mm -hmm. hello world is like 20 lines long. It just can't be successful like that. Um, and so I, I, again, I, I look at Julia and I, I think it has good, um, it has a good start. It has a, it has a good commitment to um, both uh, programs with small numbers of lines and programs with large numbers of lines. Um, and, and so I don't know, I, I, we've got to come up with an easy to start with language that allows you to evolve into a heavily typed environment. Otherwise we, can't write million line things. We can't, we wouldn't be able to write the Linux kernel in Python. We couldn't. Python was the only language we had. We couldn't do it because it just doesn't have the rigidity that C or C++ has um, because you just can't, you can't run millions of lines of code and, and have the compiler do, you know, your syntax checking, et cetera. So you can't do it all with unit tests. So long story, I think Julia or something like Julia that's trying to find a middle ground between the advanced and the beginner languages. Okay, perfect. Thanks for sharing that. And what is your call to action? Where, where, can, uh, where do we send people from here if they want to learn more about you or the projects you're working on? Well, I would say that uh, my call to action would be to get involved, especially for in higher education, get involved in open source. Uh, we have not just the Sakai and Sugi projects, but many open source projects under a group called the Aperio Foundation. Aperio Foundation is the, what we consider the Apache for higher education. And uh, if you want to build more UI-oriented things for higher education, uh, Perio conferences, et cetera. So I'd say perio.org, take a look. Uh, 
even if you're not ready to be courageous yet, you at least can come to some of our conferences and see what courage looks like. <laughs> Fantastic. And uh, the best places to find you, you've got a, you've got a blog. Yeah. DrChuck.com. Dr-Chuck.com is the, the best place to find me, but I'm, I'm pretty terrible at like writing blog posts. Um, and uh, you know, I just, I got so many things going on, but DrChuck.com is a good starting point And I try to keep that up to date. Okay, perfect. Well, it's been an extreme blast to have you on the show, Dr. Chuck. Um, thank you for sharing everything that you did. And I'm so happy we could just dig into it. And I know we went a little over the time. So hopefully you're, you're doing good over there still. Too. I'm doing great. I, I don't know how you're going to edit this. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be, uh, it's going to be minimal. So like, like, uh, I'll probably just chop off the little bit at the beginning and the end and let it go. So okay. but th this is, uh, this is how I've kind of branded the show just you know, the, the casual conversation there. And I think um, folks are really going to enjoy this. So, but uh, thanks again, Dr. Chuck. And, oh, did we leave anything off the table or, or did we cover uh, enough for this session? I guess. I think that, uh, I think that all the things that I had in mind came up to the, came up in the conversation today. Good man. All righty. Well, uh, we will talk soon then. Thank you. Okay. Cheers.